Hello, Podmissioners. Good to have you all here. We're tuning in here. Uh, it's really good to be in the presence of God. Uh, now, that song landed, didn't it? It just seemed like, man, it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And it's just, ha! Oh, that, was, that was fantastic. Uh, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Wilderness Church. And uh, thanks to Grace uh, last week for filling in for me as we were waiting to Kevin. Isn't she, isn't she a character? <laughs> I love that lady. I love that lady. She's quirky in all the right ways. I, I just enjoy uh, quirkiness. And it, it, see a lot of incredible potential uh, in that young lady. So thank God for her. Um, we're in a series here that's uh, we're calling a long story short. And we're basically looking at the theme of covenant and kingdom. Uh, and looking how it gets played out at, at, at crucial turning points in the biblical revelation. Uh, and we're doing that to try to help us get a, uh, to be able to see the forest through the trees, to get the big picture. So we're looking at, at the kind of the connecting dots on the, uh, these important transitional points in the biblical narrative. So we've looked at the, uh, the covenant with Abraham, or, or with uh, Adam and Eve, and then we looked at the covenant with Noah, and the covenant with Abraham. And then last week, uh, Grace covered the covenant with Moses. Today, we're going to look at uh, the next major covenant that we find in the Bible, and it's the covenant with King David, the great King David, a man after God's own heart, except when he wasn't. Uh, but it's, it's, a king, it's a first king-centered uh, covenant that we find in the Bible. Now, I, I shared at the very beginning of the series, some of you may recall, uh, that because we're dealing with foundational themes of the Bible, we'll, on occasion bump up against some foundational convictions here at Woodland Hills Church. And uh, we'll have occasion to kind of review some of the distinctive foundational convictions that we have here as a community at Woodland Hills Church. And this message, the first part of this message anyways, will be along those lines. Because I'm dealing with a king-centered covenant, it gives us an occasion to talk about what does God think about kings? Uh, what's God's relationship with kings and governments, uh, human rulers and human systems of rule? Um, it gives us a chance to talk about God and politics. And we have a kind of a distinctive perspective around here. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, it's likely that you've heard me say something along these lines of what I'm going to be saying in the first half of this message. You've probably heard me say something along these lines before because it's a thing we come back to on occasion. But I've read just enough neuroscience to stop being embarrassed by repeating myself because neuroscientists have proven that the average person, it takes seven times hearing something before it sinks in. So if you're sitting here grumbling, said, oh, I've already heard Greg preach on this three times, take heart because you only have four more times before you actually get it, <laughs> all right? So I encourage you, even if this is a review, lean in on this. And besides, this is so important and so foundational and almost completely neglected in the American uh, church and uh, the Western church in general. In fact, I think this, this leads us to what is, I think, one of the foundational sins of Western Christianity and that is that the church has become the handmaid of the state and uh, has gotten in bed with the state. Now, if you're new to Woodland Hills Church and you've never heard anyone talk on this topic with this perspective before, um, you may find that what I'm going to be saying differs a little bit, just a little bit, uh, from what you maybe were taught <coughs> that Christians are supposed to believe. I get so choked up over this topic, I just can't help myself. <coughs> there. Um, it may sound a little different from what you were taught that Christians are supposed to think about God and country and God in America. Um, especially if you come from like a strongly conservative Christian background that was strongly patriotic. Some of what I might say will be different, and I just ask you to keep an open mind. You don't have to agree with me, but uh, um, just ask this one question as you're going through this. Try not to get triggered and ask, is what he's saying biblical? Because at the end, that's the, 
that's really the only question worth asking, right? Is this teaching uh, biblical or not? So keep an open mind on that. I want to start by having us realize that after the first covenant with Adam and Eve was broken, the subsequent covenants that we've looked at so far have all been responses to a new form of rebellion or a new dimension of rebellion. So we saw with the Noah covenant that... Um, that was given in response to the fact that human beings had become so corrupt and they so corrupted the earth that they brought this flood on themselves. And so this new covenant is put in place in response to that. And then the Mosaic covenant with the 613 laws is a response of God to this golden calf, idolatrous rebellion that goes on at the, at the base of the camp of Mount Sinai. And so in response, God says, if that's the way you want to play, fine, well, I'll give you these 613 laws. Try living up to that. So these, these covenants, what I, I want us to see is that they're, they're accommodations. Okay, God is saying, here's where you're at. Well, then that's where I'll start in order to move you forward. So here's the covenant in which we'll do that. But the, these covenants don't re reflect who God really is and certainly don't reflect God's ideal will for humanity. They're accommodations to humanity and its fallenness. And what I want us to see this morning is that, at least in the first half of this message, is that this covenant with God, as, as, as this king-centered covenant that God's making with King David, it also is an accommodation. This doesn't reflect how God actually wants to do things. Though, traditionally speaking, the church has tended to not notice that this is an accommodation, which is why we still keep on trying to do this program, thinking that God's working through particular human rulers and human systems of rule and nation states and things like that. So I want us to see that this is a response to rebellion. To see this, you need to understand that Israel originally had no king. God didn't want Israel to have a king. From Abraham to Solomon, Israel was this odd nation that did not have a king. They had a system of elders and judges uh, set up, that, but they were there mainly to settle disputes, local disputes, by applying the law. There wasn't any like human ruler leading all of Israel. God wanted it that way because God wanted Israel to put on display to the other nations. God's always been looking at those other nations. His goal has always been the whole world. He, he, he works through the mustard seed, the little to the, to the big. So he's working through, this, through Israel, and he wants them to put on display for the other nations something of his original design for humanity. In Genesis 1, uh, God says that we are all made in his image, and uh, we are all given the commission to have loving dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. To reflect God's character by how we take care of the environment and how we take care of animals. It's still our first mandate. Uh, we were never told to have dominion over one another. And that's significant. In fact, in Genesis 1, all are equally in the image of God. And that word image in the ancient Near East, it referred to throughout all, all the countries surrounding Israel. The meaning of image was very clear. It referred to one person, and that was the king. Everyone regarded the king as being in the image of God. No one else was. But this ancient author has the audacity to take this concept, which everyone knows applies to the king, and this author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says God made everyone in God's image. God made everyone a king. God made everyone a queen. Men and women equally in the image of God. Kings and queens. Why? Because we're, to have, we're royalty. We're to reflect God's kingship by how we are kings and queens on this earth, by how we take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. But see, by definition, a king and a queen can't be dominated by someone who's supposed to be their equal. You're a king and a queen because you're not dominated by somebody else. You're not ruled by somebody else. You rule, but you are not ruled, not by anyone who's supposed to be your equal. So the very definition of being in the image of God means that, that human beings aren't to be dominated in any kind of coercive way by, by other human beings. 
In fact, in the anthropology that you get from Genesis 1, to exercise dominion over another, imposing your will on another, to have any kind of coercive control over another, you are treating people like animals. There's a category of, of beings that we are to have loving lordship over, not to exploit or abuse, but to have stewardship over and to have dominion over. But humans aren't among them. Humans are the ones who are to be over the animals, but we're not over one another. And so God's original design was to have a people who look only to God as their king, only to God as their ruler, not to other human beings. And we're to get all of our life and our worth and significance and our basic core needs from that relationship with God. And out of the fullness of that relationship, we overflow with love towards one another. And we overflow with blessings towards the earth and the animal kingdom, which God has entrusted under our care. That was God's original design. Fortunately, it got all blown apart with the fall. And humans find themselves estranged from God. And so we're not looking to God to lead us. And we're not looking to God as our source of life. And since that inner need that we have that only God can fill, it's, if it's not being filled by God, it's got to be filled by something else. And so the most common way that people try to fill that inner need is by finding some advantage in their life to have, have, have an advantage over others. And this is the beginning of the creation of hierarchies of power and privilege that we that characterize human history, where some are advantaged and some are not, and some have authority over others that others don't have. And it's all because people are now scrabbling to try to get one up on others. We turn the whole of human society into this mass competition where we're competing for resources. And there are winners and there are losers. And the winners are at the top of the pyramids and the losers are at the bottom. And the pyramids, based on whatever criteria the people at the top decide, we think that this is significant. Color of skin is significant. And so if you conform to it, you're up the scale. If you don't, you're at the bottom. But all those pyramids of power and privilege, they come after the fall. You don't find any of that prior to the fall. It's the result of our estrangement from God. And all the hatred and all the violence and all the divisions of the world go back to this one fact. People aren't trusting God as king, aren't trusting God for a source of life. And so they got to get their life by who they rule and how they rule and what their ideologies are and all the other kind of idolatrous stuff humans get involved in. But God wanted Israel to be different. Don't be like those other nations. Show them what my original design was. Display to the nations what it looks like to have a people who only trust in God as king. So they didn't have a human king. Yeah, these elders and these, these, these judges. Now, the, the system of elders and judges didn't work very well. Uh, read the book of Judges if you don't believe me. It, it didn't work very well. But no system of government works very well. And this one at least had the advantage of, 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 of letting Israel not have a king. And so at least to this degree, you're showing something of God's original design for, for human beings. But there came a time where the Israelites couldn't even do that. Um, they got tired of trying to trust an invisible king. And see, what was happening is that Solomon, he was regarded as a wise judge and prophet in the land. But he was getting really old and was about to die. And he had three sons who were going to be the only remaining judges in Israel after Samuel dies. And they were all ungodly, corrupt idiots. So the elders of Israel were sitting there looking, saying, look, at Samuel's going to die. We've got three idiots to replace him. We need a king. We need a king to be like these other nations, to protect ourselves. And so... In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read this. It said that the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, dude, you are getting old. And your sons do not follow your ways. They're idiots. So appoint a king to lead us just like all the other nations have. And when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. 
And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected. Don't take this personal, Samuel. It's not that you're a bad judge. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king. Listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know that what, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so the Lord tells Solomon all these nasty things that are going to happen if the people have a king. And all of it's basically saying this. When you give this kind of power to an individual, it almost invariably corrupts them. And so Samuel goes back and tells the people, look, God said you can have a king if you want, but you really don't want this because this king is going to get wealthy at your expense. This king is going to claim everything as his own, his rights. This king is going to take your young men and send them out to war and they're going to die. This king's going to take your daughters and make them his wives and give them as wives to his aristocratic friends. And this king's going to take others of your daughters and make them into household slaves or field slaves. It's not going to go well. You're not going to like it. But the Israelites, they don't want to hear any of this. So they respond this way. They say, no. La, 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 we're not listening. We want a king over us. And then we would be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Yahweh always said, if you trust me, you won't have to fight any battles. I'll fight your battles for you, and I'll do it in surprising ways. But they could never find that, that level of trust in Yahweh. So we want a king that will uh, go out before us. And so God, who is a, he's not coercive God, he acquiesces to this. The people are saying, we want to be like the other nations who don't trust you, okay? We want to be like the other nations who, who don't find their security in you. They find their security in, 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 in having impressive kings and impressive militaries and impressive chariots and impressive horses and, and, and swords. We want to be like them. And that some of those nations don't like us and they're kind of scaring us. And what do we have to defend ourselves with? We got an invisible God, a half-dead prophet, and three idiot sons. We want a king. We want a king. No fair. Why can't we have what they have? They can have those big chariots and those cool kings and those, those forces and those really aristocracy and those flags that wave in the wind when they're marching into a town and the horns that are blowing. We want to be like that. We don't have to trust an invisible God. So God says, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give it to you. He acquiesces to this concept of having a human king. Now, in the ancient Near East, you've got to understand this. This is so important. This is huge. This acquiescence, this accommodation. God coming down to this level, this is absolutely humongous, <laughs> huge. <laughs> because here's why. The king, in all these other ancient nations, the king wasn't just the center of the political system. The, the, the king was the center of the religious system. In fact, in the ancient Near East, they didn't distinguish at all between the religious and political system. They were run by the religion, and the, the politics was the religion. And the king was the center of it all. So in all these other nations, uh, the king has a special status. The king alone is called the image of God. The king alone is called the son of God. And God has a special favor towards to the, the king. And in all these other nations, God's dealing with the nations comes through. It's mediated by uh, the king. And... Um, the fate of the nation hangs on the king. If the, if the king is in favor with the God, the nation prospers and wins battles. But the king is out of favor with the God, the nation falters and, and loses battles. That's what everybody in the ancient Near East believes. And so when Yahweh is saying yes to this concept of kingship, he's saying yes to all of this cultural and religious trappings. Which is why once God says yes to this concept of kingship, God now has to play the role of a typical ancient Near Eastern king-centered deity. Is it how God really is? No. Is it what God would like to be doing? No. But it's what the people need at this time. So God's saying yes to all of this religious stuff. He's now going to play this role. And as a matter of fact, once God accepts this king, 
acquiesces, accommodates his kingship. From then on in the biblical narrative, God often looks very much like these other ancient Near Eastern deities who relate to the, their particular nation on the, on the basis of and by means of their king. You find the exact same kind of phraseology, same kind of, they even borrow songs that are sung to the king and his God, and some of those show up in the Psalms. And what's going on here, folks, is simply that we once again are seeing God do what God always does. God is stooping to meet his people where they're at. This God who will not coerce people into having true thoughts about him or having true feelings about him. This God, because he won't coerce them, there's a point where he must accept them as they are. And he bears their sin, their fallen views of him, and therefore takes on an appearance in the biblical record that reflects that sin, that reflects the nature of that sin and the ugliness of their sin. This is how they viewed God. And God's mercy was, allowing, was willing to allow them to do that because that's where they were at the time. And what it means then is that all of these ancient Near Eastern king-centered conceptions of God as this king-centered deity, all of them bear witness to the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that what God did on a supreme way on the cross, God has been doing throughout history, praise God. He's always been a God who's willing to stoop and enter into solidarity right where people are at and take on an appearance that reflects their sin, just like he does on Calvary. In a supreme way, he's been doing that in a penultimate way throughout all of history. So God always meets people where they're, they're, they're at. But we have to always remember that it's an accommodation. Don't forget, this is an accommodation. As you read the narrative after God accommodates this, and he's playing this role of an ancient Near Eastern deity, you would never get the impression that he's merely tolerating this. Because sometimes he's celebrating it. He delights in it. You'd think that kingship was his idea. But see, that's just God playing this accommodating role. We have to always remember that it's an accommodating role. It's a huge accommodation. Remember what Samuel said, or what the Lord said to Samuel. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me. In choosing to trust a human king, they have rejected me. What it means to choose to trust a human king is that it amounts to rejecting God as king. It's that simple, it's that stark, and it's that radical. So this is a huge accommodation. It's also a huge word to us. Uh, the word is that you know, Jesus said that you can't serve two masters. You can't do it. Not if one of the masters is God. Um, you can think you can do it. Got a lot of tradition that tells you you can do it. You can straddle that. Yeah, I just have to divide it. You can have that. You, you, can, you can pretend you can do it. You can convince your mother-in-law that you're doing it and all your friends that you're doing it. But Jesus says you can't do it. You're fooling yourself if you think you can do it. You can't have two masters, not when one of them's God. And, 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 and so he's calling us to, because these, these trusts are absolutely antithetical. Do you see this? The only reason why you're trusting in a human king or a human form of government is because you're not trusting in God as king and in God's form of government. To trust in the one, it means to not trust the other and vice versa. So folks, the, the word to us here this morning is that if all of our trust is to be in Jesus Christ, then that means we shouldn't be having, placing any of our trust in human rulers. And if all of our devotion and allegiance is, is to be to the kingdom of God, then we shouldn't be having any devotion and allegiance to any form of, uh, any human form of, of government. God accommodated that in the past, but that was an accommodation. And our call today then, folks, is to pick up once again the mantle that Israel had dropped. They were to put on display what it looks like to be a people who put all their trust in the Lord God and don't have the need to trust in a human king. Well, folks, now that Jesus Christ has come, this is our job, our calling, is to answer this question. What does it look like in a world that's so full of toxic polarities and, and, and people trusting in different human rulers and fighting over it and bickering over it and all this hostility and hatred? In a world like this, 
What does it look like to have a people who put all their trust and all their devotion and all their commitment in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom? All their allegiance is to Jesus Christ. What does it look like to have a people who are just marching to a different drum? A people who, who may, can stay above, can stay free from the toxic pollution that fills our current political atmosphere. Now, people who can stay free from getting sucked into the nasty rhetoric and the nasty thoughts that people have towards people who disagree with them. What would it look like to have a people? Our job is to answer this question for the culture at a time when the world so desperately needs it. What does it look like to have a people um, who, who, who have a peace that passes understanding because their hope and their confidence uh, is not in any particular country or any particular form of government or any particular ruler. Uh, their peace and confidence is anchored in Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. So their confidence and their peace, it doesn't go up and down based on the circumstances of the political situation or the, the national situation or even the global situation. It's a peace that passes all understanding. When everyone else is running around, chicken little, sky is falling, it's coming to an end. Oh, help us. They're all of the demons. We're of God. Vote on our side. When all that craziness is going on, what does it look like to have a people who just keep their eyes focused on Christ? And they're marching forward, praise God, doing his will. What does it look like? They have a people who are committed to not having our minds conformed to the pattern of MSNBC or the pattern of Fox News or this outlet or that outlet because they're committed to having our minds transformed by the renewing of our minds in Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't look like MSNBC News. He doesn't look like Fox. He doesn't look like the Democrats or the Republicans or the Green Party or any party you might mention. He looks like Jesus Christ crucified. He's altogether unique, altogether distinctive, altogether beautiful. And that's where our hope and our trust is to lie. Praise God. Hallelujah. Our job is to answer that question for the culture. What does that look like? It can only happen if all of our trust and all of our devotion is in Jesus Christ. And this doesn't mean that you can't vote or that you shouldn't vote. Praise God, we're in a free country. I thank God for this. And they ask your opinion. And, and so you can give your opinion. And I'm sure your opinion is the right opinion. Thank God for you. <laughs> but I just would say be careful. We have a whole history on this that teaches us about this. And if it teaches us anything, it's that we have to kind of take great care. That you can give your opinion, and, and a lot can hang on that opinion. I'm not saying this is inconsequential, but see, here's the danger. The more your opinion matters to you, and you're sure of it, the more you get angry at the people who disagree with you, and now there's a whole environment that has toxicity built into this, and you can find yourself getting sucked. Some of us are more susceptible to this than others. But you start to find yourself not really trusting the people who disagree with you. They say they care, but they don't really care. They say they know, but they don't really know. We are the ones who are smart, and we are the ones who care. And you find yourself getting caught up in this. And now you're just adding to the venom and the toxicity and the pollution of our environment. And a lot of Christians are not only adding to it, but they're slapping Jesus' name on it, which is the worst thing in the world that you could do. And it's just, what the world needs is not more of that. What the world needs is an alternative. And our job is to provide that alternative. An alternative king, an alternative kingdom, an alternative way of life. Winning the world through beauty. What does it look like to have a people who just don't put their trust and confidence in, 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 in the ability to change the world by laws, imposing your will on others, but who rather understand that the way, the power that changes the world is the power of the cross, which is the power of service, which is the power of humility, which is the power of self-sacrificial love. That's where our confidence is to lie. All of our hope, and precisely because you're in a country that you probably believe, that, and I believe, is, is just really, really good by comparison. I, I thank God for the freedoms that I have. But precisely because it's good, it can be a temptation. A temptation to think, that, oh, this, you know, this is God's country. Uh, this is what's going on here. And we forget that we're, we're called to provide this alternative. Yeah, America's, I think America's a great country by, by comparison, but the competition isn't very good. 
Uh, and, and we must never forget that it too is broken. It's broken. It's been broken from the start. And all the countries are broken. So thank God for all the blessings. But don't trust it. For goodness sake. This isn't where our trust is to be. It's not where our hope is to be. It's not where our confidence is to be. It's not where our well-being is to be anchored. And certainly not where our ultimate allegiance is to be. That, folks, has got to be reserved for one person and one kingdom. And that's Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Say amen. Amen. Oh, amen. Woo! I feel it this morning. Okay, look at it. So if you're visiting for the first time, and especially if you're visiting and you've come from a, a, a background where, where what I just said was not quite what they were saying, okay? It's a new way of looking at, you know, a new way of understanding God and government. And, and this isn't the way that Christians are supposed to talk about America. It, it, that may be what you're taught. And I just can't say, you probably have a lot of questions. But what about, but what about, but what about? And so uh, there's a book out there I would encourage you to read uh, if you have those kind of questions. It's called Myth of a Christian Nation. And it will... Uh, Maybe help you sort some things out. All right. So God says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. You go ahead and choose. And that's interesting. Because God's, he's like saying, I'm not going to pick it off for you. If you want to do this on your own, you're rejecting me as king. I'm not going to like pick my successor. You do that. So they picked Saul. David wasn't the first king in, in Israel. The first king was Saul. You know why they chose Saul? Because the reason most people choose the politicians to lead them. Saul, the narrative says several times, he was tall and handsome. <laughs> tall and handsome. Because everyone knows that being tall and handsome is a, real, is a prerequisite for being competent. Those two tend to, go, tend to go together, right? But everyone's loved Saul. He's tall and handsome. Trouble is this tall and handsome candidate, as happens sometimes, believe it or not, and sometimes, you know, in politics, what you see is not what you get. I think I read this yesterday. It says, uh, I forget who, who it's quoting, but it says, Never trust what comes out of a person's mouth when they're in love, when they're drunk, and when they're running for office. <laughs> Those three things. Never trust it. It looks good. It looks presenting. But see, Saul, as good as he presented, as good as he looked, turned out to be this neurotic, neurotic people-pleasing, uh, just wimpsy guy who ends up rejecting God. Because uh, he wants the favor of the crowd. And so, you know, you know God initially was, was going to work with this guy. God gave a good faith effort. This is who you want? Okay, I'll work with him. I'll try. And so God gives him his spirit. He promises him in 1 Samuel 13, if you walk with me, uh, your household will be established forever. So, so he, he was sincere here. You could do this, Saul. But Saul turns out to be this neurotic, self-obsessed, people-pleaser guy who rejects God. So God has to withdraw his spirit. And then we see a classic case. If you read the narrative about Saul, it's a classic illustration of the judgment of God. God doesn't lay a finger on Saul, but he leaves Saul to his own devices. And so Saul just slowly sinks into his own sick neuroses. He, he, he gradually becomes insane, tries to kill David a couple times, loves David, then all of a sudden trying to kill him. Then he loves him again. He, he's, he's going nuts. And then he consults the, a witch to try to get some spiritual advice. I wouldn't advise you ever to do that. And in the end, this guy ends up killing himself because the wages of sin is death. And when God lets go, that's what happens. The person just gravitates down towards death. But even as Saul self-imploding, even before Saul self-imploded, even before God withdraws his spirit, the narrative makes it clear that God's got a plan B. Okay, the people chose this. Let's try to make it work. But if it doesn't work, here's this plan B. And it's, it concerns this little shepherd boy named David. Little shepherd boy named David. See, God's always got a plan B because God's super smart. 
In fact, God, from the foundation of the world, anticipates every possibility and has a plan in place for every possibility that could ever happen. He's just that smart. And so in case the world unfolds exactly the way the world did unfold, well, he's got a plan in place in case Saul doesn't work out, and that's David. And if David didn't work out, I bet he had another person that has a plan C. But Saul doesn't work out, so God then raises up David. And he anoints David. And he makes a covenant with David. And the reason he makes a covenant with David is because he's now playing the role of this ancient Near Eastern king-centered deity. And the first thing that all these king-centered deities did was when they raised up a new king, they made a covenant with the king. So God's already playing this role of a covenant-centered deity. But the covenant he makes with David is, in one respect, unlike any other covenant we read about in the ancient Near East. Because it's a covenant that subtly points beyond itself in a really interesting and beautiful way. I'm going to read a portion of that covenant, okay? It's found in 1 Samuel 7. Here's what we read. It says, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so... Here, note there that he starts by talking about David's descendants, his offspring, just like he did with Abraham several weeks ago. But then he narrows it down to focus on one. I will establish his kingdom. So he's talking about one person. Now on the surface, the obvious candidate would be Solomon because Solomon was the son of David that was going to inherit his throne. And it does apply to David. But there's things that are in this covenant that can't possibly apply to Solomon. Uh, so we'd be going to read this. Uh, he shall, this person, this descendant of David, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, a house for my name, that concept of name, Shem in Hebrew, it just means the character, the reputation of God, okay, the glory of God. So Solomon did build a temple for the glory of God, and it was magnificent, but neither the temple nor his throne lasted forever. In 587, the Babylonians destroyed that temple, and nation, Israel lost its sovereign national status at that point and didn't recover it again until 1947. Um, but there was a descendant of David who did establish a throne that lasts forever, and his name is Jesus Christ. And see, he also is building a temple for the Lord, but it's not a temple made of brick and mortar. It's a temple that's made of every person who surrenders their life to Christ. It's the temple of the corporate body of Christ. It's the temple of the, the, the corporate bride of Christ in whom God's spirit dwelled. And so we're seeing here that Jesus is fulfilling the promises made to David in a way that Solomon never could. And then he goes on and says this, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And that's typical ancient Near Eastern God to king language. But when he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. Now this, of course, applies to Solomon, but it also applies to Jesus. Uh, though the Father never laid a finger on Jesus, and though Jesus never sinned, Jesus stood in our place as a wrongdoer. He did no wrongdoing, but he stood in our place as a wrongdoer and absorbed all of the, 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 the just consequences and death consequences of sin that, that we deserved. And so he was punished by other mortals as though he was guilty, as though he was wrong, as though he was a sinner. And all the affliction that came on Jesus, as this passage specifies, came from human hands. It wasn't God who afflicted Jesus, it was other human beings. And that's always the case in the judgments of God that involve violence. The violence is always brought about by human hands or by fallen spirits, usually working through human beings using their hands, but it's not brought about by God. And then he says, I will be a son to him and he shall be, uh, and I, I will be his father. I, he shall be a son to me and I will be his father. And see, 
Jesus is a son to God in a way that Solomon never could be. And God is a father to Jesus in a way that Solomon never could be. Because in the father-son relationship that we see manifested in Jesus Christ, we are looking into the very eternal heart of the triune God. And, and it reveals the depth of God's love and the, the, the nature of God's eternal essence. And, and so Jesus again fulfills the promise to David in a way that, that Solomon never could. And finally we read this. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And I let him go. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He says that the love will never be taken from you. And that, that applies to Solomon, but oh, it applies in such a far more, far more beautiful way uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, the love that the Father has for Jesus Christ will never be taken away because it's an eternal love. And see, the beautiful thing is that when you surrender to Christ, you are incorporated into Christ. You become part of the collective identity of the corporate body of Christ. And so everything that applies to Christ applies to you. And so the love that will never be taken away from Christ will never be taken away from you because you are in Christ. And that is why Paul says in Romans 8 that there is nothing but nothing but nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, neither height nor depth, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, neither famine nor pearl nor sword. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ because you're in Christ. He's, ha he's holding you. Jesus fulfills the promise, the Davidic promise, uh, far more beautifully than Solomon ever could. The love will never be taken from us and his throne will never end. There's only one candidate that could fit that description, and that is the kingdom that Jesus established with his death and his resurrection. Every other kingdom, there's been a lot of kingdoms and a lot of empires in history, and they've, all the big ones thought they were forever. We're going to last forever. We finally got it right. We're going to last forever. Look at the old Chalcedian Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Syrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire, the Ottoman Empire, all thought, we're going to last forever. This, we finally got it right. Their track record is 100% wrong because the nations come and nations go. They rise and they fall. It's like clockwork. Some last longer than others, but they all end up a pile of dust. And inside that pile of dust is a, a, a testimony to a ton of mistrust, you, uh, misguided trust. You trusted in the wrong thing. You thought this would last forever, but it never does. And the reason it never lasts forever is because it's premised on rebellion. <laughs> The rule over thing, the whole, that whole rule, dominion thing, all those power hierarchies, is predicated on rejecting God as king. And whatever is predicated on, built on a rejection of God, can never stand. It can never stand. But the kingdom of God is predicated on trusting God, not mistrusting God, on looking to him as our, as our source. And see, in the kingdom, all the things that destroy empires is supposed to be absent. Our goal is to make it absent. It's those power hierarchies that destroy empires, uh, that bring about division, that eventually erodes empires from the inside out. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the stupid categories and the ways, the filters, the conditions, the way we rank people and file people and judge people and discriminate against people and separate ourselves from other people. That's what does empires in. But this kingdom is not of that sort, praise God, to be in this kingdom. It means you see everything as a new creation because everything is a new creation. And you set, set aside those, those, that lens of privilege and hierarchy and you see people as being made in the image of God. And you see all people as being loved by God. And all those distinctions and categories and rankings are done away with. This kingdom lasts forever. 
Every other kingdom's come and gone, and America will too sooner or later if the Lord doesn't come back. Don't sweat that. It's par for the course. It's, it's what happens. It's, it's as natural as waves falling back in the ocean. Empires come and go, come and go. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hallelujah. And that's why all of our trust, all of our confidence has got to be in this. You put your trust in anything else, and you're going to have to that degree anxiety. I guarantee you. Anchor your identity in Jesus Christ, and you have a peace that passes all understanding. So, so here's the thing. They, Jesus fulfills this, the, the, all the promises to David, just like he fulfills all the promises to Abraham. Um, and that's why when he shows up, he's given titles like Son of David, and a Davidic Messiah, or a king like David. Now, now watch what God is doing here. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but it's one of the greatest testimonies to the absolute genius ability of God to bring good out of evil. God shows up, and he's wearing this Davidic kingship like a crown. I'm a descendant of David. Like, you should be proud of that. I'm a Davidic Messiah, a Davidic king. But the very concept of kingship, let alone Davidic kingship, is rooted in rebellion. It is inherently a God-rejecting concept. So look what God's doing here. God takes this fallen concept, this, this kingship that God never wanted me to exist on this planet, a concept that is inherently God-rejecting, a concept that's based on rebellion, a concept that's wrapped up with all this false religion and that causes God to act in ways that he normally wouldn't have to act, or at least appear to act in ways he wouldn't normally act, and, and play the role of this king-centered deity. God takes this fallen, corrupt concept and finds a way to weave it into his plan of redemption. And not just weave it into his plan of redemption, but when he comes into the world, he's wearing this badge of Davidic kingship, this corrupted, pagan, heathen, false religion concept of kingship, and he's wearing it like a crown. What is going on here, folks? Do, do, do you see what's going on? It's, um, uh, it's like God is saying, look, if you're unable to trust in an invisible king, you have to trust in a human king. If you're unable to come up to where my level, then I'll come down to yours. God's always willing to do that. And so he says, you want a king? I'll be your king. I'll be your human king. I'll become a human. I'll be your Davidic king. You need a Davidic king. I'll be it. I'll, I'll, I'll accommodate that. But in the process of doing that, God transforms it into something completely different. It's just ingenious. In the process of appropriating this fallen, corrupt, pagan, antichrist concept, he transforms the whole thing. Uh, to the point where he turns it all on its head. And so Jesus reveals that the, what true kingship is like, what God's kingship is like. He reveals that true kingship isn't about lording over others the way kings have throughout history. It's about coming under others, sacrificing for others. Uh, it's, it's not about imposing your will on others. It's about changing the hearts of others to be a true king. It's, it's not about using your privileges to your own advantage. But rather, Philippians 2, to be a true king is to be willing to set aside your advantages for the sake of those who don't have advantages and to use whatever advantages you've got for their own being, not for your own well-being, but for theirs. To be a true king means you don't slaughter your enemies, trample over them, and gloat in their blood, but rather it means you love your enemies and are willing to give your life for enemies. He takes this concept of kingship and, and transforms it into something that no one ever conceived of it being, and it is altogether beautiful. Yeah, he's a Davidic king, but he's, he's a Davidic king that's totally unlike David. If David was a man after God's own heart some of the time, but that's just the Bathsheba thing and killing her, her husband. But several times in the text, if you read the accounts of David, it said, 
His custom was, when he rode into town, and he and his band of soldiers would raid towns. But it said that when he would raid towns, it was his custom to never leave a man, woman, child, or infant alive, because then there would be eyewitnesses. Oh, there's a Jesus guy for you. I like that. God takes this corrupt, tainted idea of human kingship and wears it like a crown and transforms the whole thing in, in the process of doing it. And now communicates something opposite of what it originally communicated. So it brings us to this question, folks. If God could take something that is inherently anti-God, uh, rejecting God is built into it. If God could take this concept that is so corrupt, so fallen, so pagan, and yet find an ingenious way to weave it into his redemptive plan, and even weave it into Jesus' identity. If God could do something that beautiful with something so ugly, what might God be able to do with your ugliness if you just gave him a chance? This is a God who, it, it, this is a central thing here, that accommodation kingship is huge. It, 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 this whole thing, is, I, I've never seen it with such clarity, is such a monumental display of God's absolute genius at bringing good out of evil, beauty out of ashes, victory out of defeat, hope out of despair. He's a genius at doing it. We just give him the chance and can trust him to do it. If he can do it with the concept of kingship, he can do it with, 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 with anything you've got to offer. What you've got to offer is peanuts compared to that, I submit to you. Praise God. He's a God who's a genius at this. Um, our job, see, the thing is, God could have, he'd have a right to, and they said, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like other nations. God could have said, shut up in your face, and made him regret it for the next hundred years. He could have made him pay for it the next hundred years. Remember that rebellious thing you did back then? Well, I'm still going to make you pay for it. But that's not the kind of God that, that, that we're dealing with. Even in the Old Testament, they got this. This is a God who says, okay, if that's where you're at, then we'll start there. He's always a God who says, let's start here. You screwed up, you blew it, real bad, mega mistake, mega botch up, maybe hitting the bottom of the barrel for the 19th time. You've heard a bunch of people, you've done a lot of things wrong. That's where you're at. You can devil what have you wear an albatross of guilt and regret around your neck saying, after this, well, you at best God will tolerate you, he can't ever use you, you're not going to be anything in the kingdom, you'll always be a second-rate citizen, you've got to live under condemnation, blah, 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 blah. That is of the devil. What God does is says, I see that albatross thing there. you got to get rid of that. Learn from it. Learn. Don't repeat your mistakes, but learn from it. But now let's start here looking forward. God's always looking forward. How, and one of the things he asks is this. Not only do I accommodate you where you're at, but how can we work together to bring something amazingly beautiful out of this? As ugly as it is, it shouldn't have happened. It's bad. But that's where it's at. That's what's real. So will you trust me as we move forward here and allow me to prove how I am a genius at turning ugly into beautiful? I did it with the concept of, 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 of kingship. I can do it with this screw-up of yours. He's a master. I, I'll close with this. A number of years ago, uh, probably 20, I, I, my clock is so jacked up. I, 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 somewhere between 15 and 25 years ago. It was my first experience preaching in an all-black inner-city church. I had a friend who had invited me to come and preach to his congregation. And it was, it was an incredible time. Now, there's a, a cultural thing you got to get over, um, which, which was, I got three lines into my message, and someone hollers out, you know what you're talking about. And I was like, it kind of stunned me. Like, well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate that. But they come more lines, someone's saying, amen, come on, bring it on. And, and they start talking to me, and it took a while for my ADD brain to get through that. But, man, okay, they started, started to be like a rhythm. 
a, a call and response thing. And I, I got rhythm, okay? So, so we start getting into this thing here. And it, man, I, I was having so much fun. And I, you know, your sermon ends up being three times as long because half the time staying up with the people. But see, the people assume it's a, it's a community event, okay? It's not just one person talking to everybody. Everyone takes responsibility to make this a good thing, which is very biblical because the Bible says, Paul says, pray for me that I may be able to speak clearly. So that's why I tell people if my sermon sucks, it's your fault. But see, here it was a community event, and man, it was just going, I, I was, it was just a gallow, it was just beautiful. But there's one lady in particular, and by the way, I absolutely would not mind if this place was a little more amen and bring it on, brother, and come on, bring it, come on, especially this service, come on, bring it on, brother, preach it, come on. Of course, we'll probably have to notify Children's Church that we may go a little over if we get too carried away. Okay, so there's this one lady in particular, about halfway through my sermon, she started carrying on. I mean, she was very, very emotional, wailing really, really loud, but wailing with tears of joy and saying, thank you, Jesus, and just going on and on. And honestly, it was a little bit tough, challenging for me to press through that. Now, there's enough other things going on so I could distract myself from that, but it was really noticeable. And, and, and you know, hey, probably here that we would have had ushers say, ma'am, could you take it to the cry room? But here they just let it go on. And so at the end of the service, the pastor took me aside, and he wanted to explain to me kind of what was going on there. And he said, you know, in Luke 7, uh, Jesus says to Simon that the one who's forgiven little loves little, but the one who's forgiven much loves much. He goes, that lady, um, she's carrying on like that because uh, she loves much, because she's for, for, been forgiven much. A year and a half ago, he said, up to a year and a half ago, this is a lady who would trade her body for drugs. That's just what she did, a hopeless drug addict. But when her body became unmarketable because it was too used up, on one desperate night, she sold her newborn baby for some meth uh, and lived under the shame of that to the point of almost committing suicide. But he said a year and a half ago, this lady found out that even that sin can be forgiven. And she receives that forgiveness. Amen. It's like we sang before that song. You know, I... I, I a billion failures are erased. Hallelujah. A billion of those failures are erased. Even that, the love of God goes deeper than any sin, as grievous, as unthinkable, as nightmares as it may be. The love of God is deeper than that, richer than that, more powerful than that. Amen. And she got free. She discovered the freedom that comes with that. And so she just, he says, for the last year and a half, that's what she does. That's just that's what she does. And we're not going to stop her. No, you, you go ahead. You've been forgiven much. You love much. But he says the really beautiful thing, even beyond that, is this. There's three women. This lady became a, a, an evangelist to women on the street in her condition. And there's three women in this church right now that are devoted disciples of Jesus who would not be here were it not for that woman. They may not be alive if it was not for this woman. And this lady just goes out and gives her testimony. Look what God forgave me. Look what God forgave me. If God forgave this, he can forgive you too. And that message is so beautiful and so attractive and so countercultural. It just lures people in. And so now God's taking this horrendous, unthinkable nightmare's failure, but turning it into a badge of qualification and turning it into something that's beautiful. It's saving lives. It's getting people off of drugs. It's beautifying people. If God could do it with the concept of kingship and if God could do it with a lady who sold her baby, God can do it with you. Uh, whatever it is, whatever it is, don't wear it like an albatross around your neck. Surrender to God, and you can begin to wear it as, as a crown, a badge. This is what God has forgiven me of. This is, and God will now use that to minister to other people. Our failures, billions though they be, become qualifications, become pieces of art in the Master's hand. 
Trust that he can take this unthinkable thing and turn it into something beautiful. Whether it's a little thing or a giant thing, all of it's rendered over to him. We are, we're, we're, this is the metaphor of we're clay in the master's hands. We're his works of art. He knows how he takes, he takes absolute manure and fashions it into diamonds and rubies and gold and emeralds. He's able to do that. Praise God. That's why in, in the kingdom, you see, no matter what's going on around you, you have cause to be optimistic and you have no reason to regret. Hallelujah. Learn from the past, but don't, don't, don't let it be a weight on you. Receive the forgiveness and start here. God always starts here. Here's always the right place to start. It may be dark, it may be smelly, it may be ugly, it may be putrid, it may be vomit, it may be terrible, but that's where you are. Start there. And his love will transform that into this. And this is the hope of glory. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Woo! Everyone stand. Let's give him praise. Let's give, give him praise. Hallelujah. Oh, God, it's beautiful. Isn't God good? Yes, she is. You got to know she is. Uh, praise God. Praise God. Okay, um, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here uh, at the stairs. And if you're here tonight, this morning, and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, come on up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a devoted follower of Jesus, but maybe there's something in your heart saying, I should check that out. I encourage you to listen to that voice. Come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what it is to get started on this walk with God. So kingdom people, as we leave here, can we do it as the people who are, who are just committed to staying above that toxic pollution, keeping our eyes on the King of kings and the Lord of lords and having all our eggs in that basket? And can we do it as the people who are committed to in all things, uh, turning over all things to God, our, our failures, all of it, trusting that he, the master artist, will make something beautiful out of it. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. God bless you.